Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. They have what I call the ideology of objectivity. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. Insisting that language must bear some relationship to truth and to logic. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Ah, yes, that is our job. Welcome to the Our Man in Stockholm podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor, and I'll be using this podcast to tease out some of the issues around the fourth estate, what journalism is, what it's supposed to be, and what media consumers could reasonably expect from it. I'll also be using it as an occasional outlet for other interviews that don't find a home elsewhere, but uh, in the beginning, we're just going to concentrate on the journalistic and media aspect of the whole thing. In the coming weeks, I'll be talking to a wide range of people inside and outside the business about the issues that affect an essential part, well, what should be an essential part, of working democracies. This is all part of a new Patreon project I've started, so if you want to support it, go over there to patreon.com forward slash Arrowman in Stockholm. You'll find all the details there and the, the reasoning behind why I've started it and what you can do to help me out. Uh, Why did I start it? Well, what interests me in all of this is who decides what we get to see and hear and read, who gets to be on the air and who's kept off it, and what can we do to make sure that our journalism and reporting is truly representative of our society. This week we're starting off with one of my favourite working class heroes who's rise from watching boxing matches as a kid through the local papers to covering combat sports for one of the world's biggest outlets is a source of inspiration to me every day. I first met Dubliner P.T. Carroll of MMAfighting.com in Las Vegas back when I was covering the Conor McGregor fight against Nate Diaz in March 2016. As you'll hear from the interview, P.T.'s a warm and friendly character, but he's also one of the sharpest reporters in a cutthroat business. And after covering pretty much every inch of the rise of Conor McGregor, he's built an international reputation that no European MMA journalist can match. MMA or mixed martial arts is a strange beast from a journalism point of view. It grew out of the underground, publicised by hardcore bloggers and websites, and a media ecosystem almost completely outside the mainstream has grown out of it. PT is now one of the most respected figures in it. He's also old school. His phone book is bulging with the numbers of fighters and coaches that he talks to every day, and he doesn't seem to report rumours without exhaustively fact-checking them first. I started by asking him about his earliest memories of sport and what made him want to be a journalist. My granddad, Tommy, uh, my mad's, my mom's dad, used to look after me on uh, Friday nights or Saturday nights so they could go out one night a week. And I was only a toddler, but I always remember that we loved me granddad, Tommy, looking after me because um, if, if there was a boxing match on, he'd wake me up in the middle of the night and he'd get my brother down to watch like Prince Nazim or someone. Mm-hmm. And then he'd like he'd get make sure we were back in bed then before my ma... And dad would come home. So we'd be, me and my brother would be in bed pissing ourselves laughing. And my man and dad would be coming in. And of course they knew we were, we, he was getting us up to watch it. But he used to walk through and he'd be like, uh, oh yeah, they've been in bed for hours. They've been, they haven't been a peep out of them. You know what I mean? He'd be like laughing because we were thinking we were getting away with murder. So I don't know, little things like that. And I can remember um, when I was really taking an interest in the build up of fights and stuff would have been Steve Collins and, and Chris Eubank as well. Um, I can remember that was the first time there was, Sky Sports packages. I, I remember that big schism happened when there was families too poor to have Sky Sports and other families that were rich enough to have it. So my uncle Ollie had it. And I, I, tell, I tell you, half of Blanchardstown was in a sitting room that night to watch the first fight. I just can remember that big, uh, the big feelings before big sporting occasions. Like, and, and of course, Italian 90 and 1994, the street parties and that. You know what I mean? It was, it was brilliant. Because it brought something extra out of Irish people, didn't it? 
Oh, it certainly did. I mean, it was it's one of those things you can always go back to those big fights or those big tournaments or whatever. And do you remember anybody in particular, right? Do you remember a commentator? Do you remember a writer in the Evening Herald or the Evening Press or on 2FM or whatever? And you go, you go, oh, you know, that guy has a way with words, that kind of thing. Or was it just something that washed over you when you were young? No, I can remember even Eamon Dunphy having a big effect on me when I was younger because everybody would be giving out to the telly when he said anything. And I'd be kind of thinking, how does this guy still have a job if everyone's so upset with him? <laughs> <laughs> and that kept him in the game for so long. I, I think my dad used to explain to me very younger than people were, you know what I mean, and why, why they were uh, why they were uh, important. And I can remember he'd always say, like, even if even if people were disagreeing with Eamon Duffy, he'd always be like, he's a very intelligent man, though. He's a very intelligent man. So then I'd be like, all right, this is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so shame nobody says that about us these days. But yeah, there you exactly. Go. <laughs> What was the first thing? Like, you know, did you sort of sit there? So funny you mentioned Dunphy now because I actually entered a writing competition that they had at the Sunday Independent back in the day, you know? And that was kind of where I first got the idea that this might be something, like, I, something I wanted to do for a little but also that it might be possible. Do you remember the first thing you sat down to write and thought, you know, God, this might, this might work in the paper? Um, I used to write, I used to win all them prizes, them Easton's prizes in school, in, um, in secondary school. And I was busy trying to look like, really cool and like be like a gangster as well as winning the short story competition and getting called out in front of the assembly. It's, it's a hard look to pull off. <laughs> I don't think I nailed it down to be honest, but I used to get mad into writing fiction all the time. I used to be in the poetry competitions all the time. It was always my strongest thing in school was always, um, was, uh, English and literature. Like I, I had no head for maths whatsoever. Like I, I it makes me nervous. Like when I see too many numbers, I start sweating going, oh, no, 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 what's going on? So, yeah, it was always something that I, I gravitated towards. And I always had great English teachers that took an interest in me. So I was lucky like that, you know. You had uh, you mentioned your granddad, Tommy, there. Was there anybody around you, right, who, who worked? I know there was a, a friend of my mom and dad's, and one of them worked as a printer in the evening press. But I think that's as close as I came to anybody yeah. who did journalism. No, nobody. No, I don't know. I did. The first people I met in journalism was when I got into journalism. Really. <laughs> there was a guy, though, I can remember, there was a great football player who used to play for me, dad's football team, Hunstown Villa. Um, and his name was Byron Martin. He was a brilliant football player, a young fella. And his dad worked for the Evening Herald, something Martin. I can't remember what his name was. He was an older man. And he used to always dress like... Like one of them 1930s uh, journalists, like he'd have one of them hats on him, like with yeah, their like, hat, press card in it. Into it. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I can remember my dad, he showed me when he got the Herald in the evenings, like, look, there's Byron's dad. That's pretty much all I, I could remember. And I'd be like, and what does he do? He, talk, he talks about football and he writes it down for the paper. All right, that's weird. <laughs> that's, a, I can, that's the only person I can really remember. I hope I'm not forgetting someone that's. Uh, Massively important. <laughs> oh, you get a big long email of somebody you haven't seen for 20 years yeah. going, oh, I meant so much to you, you when you were a young Carol. <laughs> <laughs> but at what point then, right, you go through school and you win all the Easton's competitions and that kind of thing, right? But it's a huge step then to, to do it for the love of it and to do it for the Easton's book vouchers and actually getting paid for what you do. So when you left school, what, what, what did you do then? Did you go straight to university? Did you continue as a shoplifter? What did you do? Yeah, well, my shoplifting career was really taken off at that time. <laughs> no, but I took a year off because uh, I did so shit in my leaving cert. Like, I was getting drunk every day, like, when I should have been in school, like, going to these study classes, I'd be in the fields drinking, like, you know, we'd rob a bottle of whiskey off someone's owl at me down the, down the field drinking that. Like, I really, I really sabotaged myself before the junior cert and the leaving cert, nearly just completely crumbled under pressure, I think, and did shite. 
And then I had, um, I think I had like 310 points. Failed a few things and everything, but I didn't fail the importance. And I got my maths, got got a language, got a science, so I'd be able to go to college or whatever. And the only option at that stage was to go to Minute um, and do a master's, but do a master's through theology. So I had to do theology because th- they lower the points. So arts is usually like 350, and yep. they lower it down to 310 if you take theology as one of your subjects. Now, I was told when I signed up for that, you'd be able to leave theology after the first year. That is not the case. Uh, you have to stick it out. And I did an arts degree through theology for three years, like literally priests teaching me stuff like and, it sounds um, like divine intervention into your career. Oh, mental. And I, I can remember, I was just like, I don't, I, don't, uh, I wanted to be, the, the idea then was I'll be a teacher because I got two months off in the in the summer that I can just arse around with. And I, one of my teachers was was a legend in, in school, uh, Mr. Kane. And I knew he'd just always go off and do do something else for the summer. Like I can remember he, he, he'd be chopping down Christmas trees and stuff. <laughs> he'd be selling cars. And I always just thought it was deadly that for two months every year, he just did mad shit like he didn't didn't care like he just got to you know do whatever he wanted and i thought that was a good idea but um yeah somewhere during that arts degree my fandom for mma became something else where i i knew i could access all these guys in ireland that were taking off because obviously my brother was training with these guys and my brother has been a massive influence on how i even um was watching the sport and stuff because he used to get um dvds off a guy in secondary school and he say when i was in first year i'd come home at lunch break and luke would have this like whatever they are dvd whatever it was called back then and he put it in we could watch the whole pride event and there'd be like 15 lads there in this little box room in blanche watching these lads like we didn't even hear them but like straight away like vandalay silva all these big names were our favorite guys we wouldn't even know when they were fighting but you just get the thing and we're like oh yes if they're on the if they're on the card they're on the card but then obviously when he started training i I kind of I I could see how I can get into these guys like I can meet these guys like these uh these young guys from SBG that seem to be doing well I could meet them and stuff so there was a lot of different things going on um like I, I had a brain tumor removed when I was in college so in my second year in college I was twenty and it uh, maybe it was third year I don't know I had a, like a brain tumor removed so I I don't know why but after that I became even more infatuated with people getting hit in the head it's mental isn't it. <laughs> Like, I was like, look at these lads able to take solids in the head like that. That's class. Because like, I knew it's not that bad. Because I knew I couldn't do it. Do you know what I mean? So I'd be like looking at them going, holy shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. But that, I, I don't know. I know that's not really answering the question. And it's a lot of shit thrown in there. But yeah, I don't really know how I ended up doing that. <laughs> uh, can you remember the first thing you ever got paid for? probably only recently to be honest because <laughs> i started doing um i started doing the gazettes so i was working for the gazette after when i it was either before i did my master's and i was just out of my arts degree or it was while i was doing my master's i think it was before because it would have been about 2009 2010 they kind of picked me up for the odd shift and i thought like um now i thought this was I was brilliant at this. And then when you go in, you're working a regional paper and, and these guys are just savages. And you're writing 15 stories in seven seven hours and stuff. And, you know, Rob Hayder and, and Stephen uh, Finlader, and they were brilliant. They were just so good to me. I had interned at the Evening Herald again, thought it was Billy Bill, Big Balls coming in the door. And, um, yeah, so that was... That, that was um, I definitely didn't get paid for my internship at the Herald. I, I didn't get paid for the first few articles I did with the Gazette. But I think eventually they start kind of picking me up for shifts and stuff, and that felt great, you know what I mean? 
getting there wasn't mad money or anything, but just getting paid to do do a sports desk over there was brilliant. Did, and did then in the meantime, I could I could push to the guy, like, guys like so you had Conor McGregor and Lucan, you had Chris Fields and Swords. So there's all these different little areas that and there was loads of them. Like I had nearly a fighter for every catchment area in in the Gazette, so you'd be able to eke them in. You know what I mean? Push yeah. them kind of stories into the thing when there was nothing else there and they had no choice to be like, Roy Peter, put that stupid shit in the in the in the sports section. You have nothing else to, to do, you know what I mean? Well you had that thing as well. Not only were you a young, sort of working class bloke who who had come through a theology education in Maynooth, but you were also dealing with a sport which was like most people I mean I still get it today where people like senior journalists come up to me and go, That's not a sport. You know? Oh, so you yeah. had to deal with that as well. Was it difficult to get that in there? Because this is before even Conor McGregor was Conor McGregor, right? Conor was fighting yeah. on local shows. Chris Fields is uh, still like I mean he'd be a well-known name to Irish MMA fans we but all, he wouldn't like, be a household yeah. name we all would have we all in our hearts were like these guys are ready but we actually had nothing to prove it you yeah. know we, we had because they hadn't got the international test from the UFC some of them guys like Roddy was getting international tests yeah that's but own Roddy felt like, striking coach yeah, yeah it feels like even though he was getting the and he was passing the tests they weren't reaching the international masses as in the victories weren't really talked about yeah it was because it was all focused in America. So, yeah, it was... Uh, sorry, what was the question again? Sorry, Phil, I'm all over again. <laughs> no, but you were doing the sort of... like You know, you had plenty of challenges oh, yeah, to, get to get through. Yeah, but to get the sport as well, to get people to take the sport seriously. I can remember the first day I walked into the Herald, I had told all Connor and all. It was 2011 or something in my internship. And I was like, don't worry, lads. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be in the Herald next week. And I we're here to take team. over. Uh, I can remember Stevie Bennett and Keith Woods looking at me in there. What the? F- <laughs> what is wrong with this lad? I was like, yeah. So they locked him in a cage. <laughs> they fight each other. But in fairness to them lads, they were really good. They they get they always encouraged me, and 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 they were like, I remember Stevie Bennett telling me on the last day of the internship course on the first day i thought like, there's no way these boys can't sign me up for life. Yeah. yeah. Like after this internship, they'd be uh, mad not to. Have- yeah, but I can remember Stevie Bennett going like, "It's gonna get really shitty. Like, you're you're gonna want to quit this. You're gonna make no money. But if you can stick at it, you'll probably make it happen. Mm-hmm. So that is that. That's the hard thing. It's not getting your stories out. Can you stick it out when everything is telling you to leave? Because that's what's gonna be make you a journalist in the end. And I always remember that and like really low points. Like, just keep going, keep going. Yeah. I mean, but, you, you, of course, you had that time, right? Because you were going through this thing before Connor became massive. I assume you were working in, in other jobs as well as doing journalism on the side, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, I was working in Atlantic Home Care. I was working in the Leisure Flex. I was the Dodgems man in the Leisure Flex. I was the Quasar man. I used to actually dress up like a dinosaur and dance around for children's birthday parties. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you give it up? <laughs> yeah, so like they, they let me do it like three times, but one time... So you can't really see anything when you're in things. So you're just dancing around and he's put on a song and like happy birthday or whatever. And you're kind of doing your meals. And it was always a fantastic mover. So that was no problem to me. But whatever way it was, one time I was in the suit and I felt like, oh, my leg, I don't have enough freedom to pull off this uh, pivot or twist or whatever the hell I was trying to do. Yep. There was a fucking child on my leg. I sent the child across the room. I flicked him off my leg. Child went into orbit and they were like, well, we're going to have to move this lads to the, to the bumper cars. <laughs> And your dinosaur dancing career ended at that point then. And it actually faked me birth hair to get that job. Because I, was I, was, uh, I wasn't 16 yet, right? And all my mates were working with their dads. And they were getting different, they were doing different bits and bobs that like, you know, just cash in the hand situation. So I was like, fuck this. And I went up to the, the post office and I tip-exed out my birth and put in something over a photocopy. Yeah, I'm actually end. 35 million years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, I can remember they were like, 
on my 16th birthday, the day I should legally have been working, they were like, you're 19 today, Peter. And I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I think I'm actually in a similar situation. I started working at a pub there in Ireland when I was an awful lot younger than 16. So, you know, I'd be getting my pension any day now, you know. <laughs> it's funny. Like, no one gave a shit, really, though, didn't they? If you could, if you could, uh, if you could go to that length to actually provide, like, and fake your birth certificate. Yeah, yeah, that's, like, that's, right. that's what we call an entrepreneur in Ireland now, you know. Faking yeah, their yeah. birth certificate is the first thing you do, you know. But um, in recent years then, like, you know, it, Connor, obviously, when we get back to Connor, like, it has, it's become a huge thing. Mixed martial arts has become a huge thing. Now, it's still a sort of a limited market for journalism in Ireland or in Europe. Like, but when did you gradually make the move towards becoming, uh, like, you know, less of a dinosaur dancer and more of a full-time journalist? Only in the last couple of years, to be honest. Like, I, I was still always working jobs. Like, I was making, like, and even, even, like, I, I went, I tried to make it my, my full-time job in 2015. Hmm. And that was great because Connor was in Vegas. You know, I was freelance for about eight different places. And that was good. Like, it, it was good. I was in Vegas maybe 10 times that year. I'd also signed a contract to ghostwrite Connor's book. So it was all on the up. You know, that was all on the up at the time. Like, everything felt like it was moving in my favor. But then you go two years down the line and you're like, shit, I'm making 600 quid a month yeah. and I can't pay me rent. Do you know what I mean? So it's it, a real roller coaster. But de- it was 2015 when I tried to actually make it into a like a, a money thing and try, try to actually live off the job to uh, varied success, let's say, up until 2017 when I eventually signed with MMA fight. Yeah. And before that, like, I mean, one of the problems that uh, we seem to have in this business, if you go out now, there's loads of MMA writing, there's loads of writing about the National Football League, the NBA, soccer, rugby, whatever, right? But it seems to me that there's very, very few people who are actually prepared to pay for it. And by that, I don't mean the readers. The readers are fine. But it seems to me that the media houses will go, like, I'm not going to name them, but there was one particular crowd who contacted me before the Mayweather fight last year when Connor boxed against Floyd Mayweather. And they said, oh, yeah, we want this, 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 and this. And I went, and how much? And they told me, I went, nah, you know, mm. I'd rather sit by a pool in uh, with Noel McGrath in Las Vegas and not do anything than yeah, take I've 50, done that, believe 50 euros for 12 that. No, <laughs> that's true. Okay, it's probably not that bad. But, you yeah. know, so did you find that you had an awful lot of customers with very shallow pockets or how was it working for you at that time? Yeah, I like. I mean, I feel completely let down by Irish media, the mainstream media in Ireland. I think it's a it's an absolute disgrace. I think it's it's a it's a cross like and look I'm not like you know that you've helped me a lot you know like during when I was going through things that I didn't know you I turned to guys like you turned to guys like Ken Early uh, even Paul Kimmage all, like all of you guys have made a real effort to try and push me into that mainstream thing Dave Corn he was very good out of the independent yep. but when push comes to to shove they're they're using an antiquated system and they're trying to put it into new media. Yeah. Like they still have the old system. Like you would be, you would be, very, you'd be overwhelmed. Like I mean, I have some mad stories, but I mean, yeah. So it's I feel like when a guy like me is after signing for the the biggest um, media out, MMA media outlet in the world, and I've been calling these MMA uh, these sports editors for four or five years, begging them, begging, yeah. please, 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 please. And they still mess it up. Mm. I mean, I, I don't want to blame the editors personally, but the fact that none of the like every publication in Ireland is dying. Yeah. I, like all these old, like all these old, like none of them are making money, and they're all trying to figure out a way to bridge the gap into online. And none of them, none of them gave me a chance at all. You know, yeah. nobody, nobody helped me at all. And I'm begging. I was begging. I was going around begging like a lunatic. And and to be honest, like it's just. And this isn't just media. Like I mean, I. I <laughs> 
you always see it across the board like my friends you might be actors and stuff they just they're stuck into giving people the 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 older generation the the generation that catered to the times before the internet they're nearly giving them precedent over the younger people who are who are trying to come in that will help that transition yeah um it's really disappointing and i, I mean it's something that something that um it still pisses me off that uh, I have no Irish contract or never had an Irish contract yep. um, and, and nobody seems to want me to, to do the work over here. And I think that's honestly, that ship has sailed now. I, I can remember saying to all my great friends at Severe MMA and all, all my Irish colleagues in MMA, I was like, if we don't nail down jobs before Mayweather McGregor, we are never going to get them. Yeah. If, if, if they don't want, if they're not interested to do it at this point, even though the fight's an absolute shit show, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. But the fact that it's so talked about and they haven't put their hands in their pocket at this stage, if we don't get jobs before then, we are screwed. Luckily enough, I got a job a month before. Yeah. Like that's that's how, and I was really on the way out then. I, I had applied for a job as a cleaner. I yeah. was getting ready to clean offices in Fibsbury. Didn't give a shit. I needed to pay rent. Mm. Like, that was the way it was. But that was an amazing situation because it was literally the biggest sports story uh, th of that year, right? I mean, there was no, certainly in Ireland, but generally globally, it was an absolutely massive story. And so many people realised so late. So, like, I deal with a lot of people internationally, as you know. And there was an awful lot of going, yeah, but, but, but why? Like, why is this so big? I was going, you don't actually need to know why. This is Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather. Any further questions, you know? Yeah, and, exactly. And, and as that week went on, I had more and more people. Now I was over there. I know you. I, I think you missed that one. You didn't go over for that one, did you? I just literally signed my contract. Yeah. So I mean, I was. I wasn't in the the website's plans at all to yeah. be on site anyway. You okay. know what I mean? B because Niall and I were there, and we discovered that you know th there wasn't that much. But the the more the week went on, there's more people going. Oh, you know, we probably should have done you know four or five different video reports out of that. But at that stage, it was too late. And you got you had guys showing up on the Friday, you know, and getting and of course uh, the promoters and the pay per view people were delighted to have these sort of late influx of journalists. You're going, lads, it's far too late. You missed all the good stuff that we could have done you know yeah but i think that goes back to like you know as a sort of a freelance journalist you have one business model and the media houses have another and those two are not really you know we're kind of writing yeah. for people now you know for an instagram and a snapchat generation that you know editors don't really understand it but just because you don't understand it doesn't give you the license to get away from it kind of thing you know and mm. um, you're quite active in social media but there's a sort of running joke between people who covered mma for a long time that you're not the most technically gifted but i oh. see you out there with a video camera these days now <laughs> peter i've huge impressed uh, what, oh. does that sort of add to you know the contract you have with mmafighting.com the biggest uh, mma media outlet out there is that something they asked you to do were you reluctant to do it did you find it scary when you're filing video the first time yeah yeah no like, luckily they're all great but i can remember uh i can remember ariel helwani came to me and saying like i was like i've never done this before i mean like how, how do you expect me to do it and he's like do you have a phone have you ever <laughs> taken a picture on your phone well, the camera's like a phone. He's <laughs> just pointed and pressed the button. I can remember Abby then, the MMA junkie guy, uh, UK, I mean, European video guy. He was like, just press the fucking button, PT. <laughs> That's how you say it. So, yeah, I, I, I built myself. Yeah, it was, it was definitely. But, like, I'm not editing anything. I send it all off to Galerme yep. or Casey or, or Danny, one of those guys that does that. Like, they're making me look like I know what I'm doing. I'm just literally pointing the thing at them and talking shit. So, it's, it's easy for me. You know, well, I, mean, it's, it, I, did, I was very nervous. Like I do, like when I have to do anything new, I panic. I get myself into a state of so much panic that I've failed already, and I know how it's gonna feel when it fails. So if it does happen, I, I don't care. I've already, I've already <laughs> experienced it, and then it usually comes off well because I, I've, 
I've already gone through everything that could possibly go wrong in my head. <laughs> yeah, so, so it turns out to be a tiny little victory anyway, if you get any moving pictures whatsoever. That, that's exactly what I did. One time I was doing a weigh-in and I forgot, like I was trying to type in the weigh-in results as well as take the video. Yep. And Fabrizio Verdun was in the main event, the Brazilian legend. And I just basically got like, I cut off his, like it, it, the shot cut off his head. So it was just basically Fabrizio Verdun's <laughs> nipples weighing in for his fight. <laughs> There's nobody wants to see that. <laughs> Mrs. Verdun possibly, but that's about it. <laughs> Actually, for, for the students listening, I got to tell a horror story now that goes back to um, uh, one of the big mistakes I ever made. And I made it once and I've never made it since. And I promise you I never will. Uh, I was over in Norway interviewing Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, the Manchester United legend, scored a goal in the European Cup final 1999, the whole lot, you know. And um, this was around the time they were speculating about who would replace Alex Ferguson, you know. And I met Ole Gunnar, a lovely bloke, and um, I was filming an interview with him, and he said, I think Ryan Giggs would be a great replacement for Alex Ferguson. And your head just goes, ka-ching. Yeah, going, this is going to be, yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> no, this is going to be all over the world. It's going to be video. It's going to be global news and everything else like that. But the, And I called up the Reuters TV desk, and I went, I have Ole Gunnar Solskjaer saying that Ryan Giggs is, uh, is going to be, like, should be the next man, uh, manager at Manchester United. And they go, oh, just get to that, that to us as quickly as possible. I went, yeah, 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 yeah. So I went and I sat down at the computer, and I turned on the video, and all you hear is, like, he's, he looks lovely, lovely suit, the tie knot is lovely, and all you hear is, ah. <sighs> So I'd interviewed a guy called uh, Egil Olsen, Drillo Olsen, who used to manage Wimbledon before, um, famous for wearing wellies and long balls and that kind of thing, right? But I'd had a lapel mic on him and he just walked off. So when the interview was over, he just turned and went. And uh, what happened was the lapel mic got damaged and I didn't check it and I didn't do what we're doing now, which is we're listening with headphones. Uh, so yeah. I didn't know that the sound was absolutely awful. So I couldn't sell it. And it just as the icing on the cake, Pizzi, they called me back about two or three months later when he signed as manager at Cardiff City and said, do you still happen to have that interview with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer where he talks about Ryan Giggs? And at that point, you just want to kill yourself for a second. <laughs> but um, that, That's my worst fear. Like that is That, that hasn't happened yet, but I'm sure it will. Like, let's be honest like if you're doing this as much as we are you're gonna have that problem it's gonna happen at some stage and it probably will be a big interview like that yeah i would just you know always monitor what you're doing you know like i mean even bad pictures can be saved by good sound you know so if you if you happen to be doing these things always check the sound kids you know uh, i want to go back to to conor mcgregor and i want to tell you the story uh, of uh, tell me the story of how you became his ghostwriter for a book that doesn't exist <laughs> <laughs> It's a mystery to me as well. Um, when was so, this, Peter? Huh? When when did this all happen? Like, tell tell me take me back to when. Uh, the, uh, it was it was Christmas. It was it, right. So I was working an office job, and I was not doing a lot. I was doing. I was maybe doing. I was kind of writing articles for Severe Course. That was all unpaid, and I was doing. Like once, maybe once a month, I'd, I'd get something in the mirror if, if Connor had a fight broke or if I got an interview with Connor where he said something like he's going to rip people's faces off or whatever he does, mm -hmm. they'd, they'd pop it in. So I was making probably 40 quid a month off journalism at this stage. Really, big, uh... big dollars, big dollars. <laughs> yeah. But like I was working. Jeez, I'd work every day, but yeah. I just wasn't making money. And um, so, yeah, I was in my office job and was it? A, it... So, yeah, the phone rings. It's like Connor's Connor McGregor's ringing you. So like Connor had taken off at this stage. He had his UFC debut. He had he had uh, gone on and, and beaten Max Holloway. He had two fights, and you know it seemed like it was going to be Dublin the next fight or whatever. Mm. So it was it was the the day I was about to finish my work at research and Marcus the office job to go on Christmas holidays. So it was probably twenty third or twenty second December. And Connor rings, and I was like, all right, what's, what's going on here? I was like, shit, I must be in trouble. It must be something bad, blah, blah, blah. 
I went out into the uh, the halls like, hello. He's like, Peter, as you are aware, <laughs> as you are aware, I am writing a book. You will now write that book. Happy Christmas. Hang up. <laughs> Next of all, Tony McGregor's messages. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? How's everyone talking about this? And, and I didn't know anything about it. So uh, that was great. And that kind of gave me the gave me the push to leave the job then. Basically, I was like, well, this is I was like, this is going to be a big opportunity. I want to nail it. Yeah. So I leave my job and I, I can basically like I, it wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough money to like basically keep me keep me alive for a few months if I was trying to try and write this book. But then like the book, if the book is made, then you make money off the back end of the book. And I was going, geez, this book is going to be huge. Mm-hmm. But it just it just didn't happen. I mean, I think when Connor signed for the book, it was in the summer of 2014 and if you consider how much his life changed every six months from then yeah i'd say like the contract he was like i honestly don't know what what, what happened but we we couldn't do it we we tried to go i tried and i moved over to vegas with him for a couple of weeks and that all that footage is now immortalized in that notorious documentary where his knee was broke yeah. like he was he was walking around he was in shite but somehow he managed to win that fight like it was tense place to be around luckily i know all the people like i've been around them for a long time so it wasn't too bad but it was just an awful time to try and do it but of course i felt like a massive failure because this was the, the probably the biggest opportunity i'd ever been given and basically fucked it up you know what i mean there was no, there's no way of, of, of kind of looking around it you know yeah but i don't think i'm not sure you can describe it as a failure on your part because the circumstances changed right and connor went from being worth say his book is worth 10 grand or 20 grand connor's book is now worth millions you know so yeah, yeah, and yeah. that changed like over the, the space of those few months you know and i suppose the fact that he chose you at all is um you know he went to to you as being the sort of you know the the guy I wasn't who writes the first guy i wasn't the first guy they, i think he, he had uh, another guy at the start oh, i know the person i don't want to name his name in case he doesn't want it but um it's like it's not like you're dealing with it like this this guy is it's not easy you know what i mean it's not like it's it's going to be on his terms yeah all the time like which is understandable as well yeah. but it's it's just the business is so chaotic and it's so i don't know it, it's just a very very hard thing to do a guy like connor is who he is because he can't sit still for a second. His yeah, brain yeah. is on the go constantly. To try and get him to sit down and talk to you about something that happened in fucking 1997. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like he's Not like, I happen. don't. I can remember like I was saying to him once, like, all right, let's talk about growing up. Yeah, like I was in Crumlin, I was a kid, and I was playing fucking football. Like, what? Well, what else do you want me yeah. to do? Chapter like, two. It's like, stupid. <laughs> let's talk about the real shit. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> so it was like it got to a stage where me and Connor were talking, like basically. Like the we're, you know the deadline was coming up and we had nothing like and he was basically like, you know let's go an hour per chapter like yeah and I was willing to do it just to get it done but it's just we just couldn't get it done. But was that because he like you know he'd lost interest in it or you know he was focused on other things or I think he probably did like I think he did lose interest with it because he was he was following his dream like he was on the verge of all his dreams coming true with regard to UFC titles and stuff and I think. It, like it, the book is a distraction. It's gonna take me away from actually doing what I want to do here. Like, and and it probably would have. Yeah. Um. Like I, I, you know what I mean. I, 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 I wish of course that the book could have been released. But the one thing I was very conscious of throughout the situation was not to announce that I had signed that contract because I didn't want to become the guy who. Yeah. You didn't write Conor McGregor's yeah, book. Conor McGregor's ghostwriter, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, I didn't want to become that guy. Like, so, I mean, and I had a feeling. I just had a feeling after the first couple of months, this was not going to be, this was not going to be easy. Yeah. You know, but I do appreciate him reaching out to me. You know, I know the guy a long time. Um, Does he I still did. talk to you, Pete? 
Do you still get no. the odd call? Like, I mean, he, he invited me in the line to the premiere of his, his uh, movie. And, of course, I know the filmmakers very well. I know everybody in his camp very well. Um, but, no, I'd have to say that relationship probably isn't, uh, isn't there anymore. Do you ever see it coming back? Do you think that, you know, in 10 or 15 years? I don't years... know. I feel like a, a guy like him that's, that's so wealthy, that has a lot to lose, that's probably very paranoid about the company he keeps and stuff. Um, I know I would be, man, if I was that rich. <laughs> but, like, I mean, um, in a lot. Yeah. He had put away he had 15 fights, 15, 14 fights or whatever it was before he went to the UFC. Chris Fields, Paddy Hewlin, Carl Pendred, Neil Siri, all these guys had proven themselves to the extent that the community were kind of like, we need to get these guys to the UFC. Mm-hmm. They've proven it. They've beaten everyone in Europe. Like, let's do it. Yeah. That's, it it's just a completely different environment these days. There's nearly like, um, because of what Connor's done, if you're an Irish fighter that has 3-0, 4-0 record, you're like, oh, well, they're going to they're gonna come and get me now in case they missed the boat on this one. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But where do you see yourself in that then? Because, you know, now you see, you actually sound like one of the English soccer journalists now has been around and he's going, oh, you know, it's coming home, it's coming home. It's not coming home. They're all useless, you know? But, you know, <laughs> is that, do you see yourself being able to continue to make a living? Do you think, oh, I'd, write, I'd like to write books about other things? I'd like to make films. I'd like to make a radio documentary. Because to, to me, you're very much in the reporter role. You're the guy who's, you get up every morning. I know you sit at that table and you're making calls from the moment you get up to the moment you go to sleep, trying to dig up stories and you're brilliant at it. But is that what you want to be doing? or do you want to develop in some other way yeah no i definitely do and, and this last year like i mean all the mma fighting guys pushed me to go out and basically be a one-man band as you've yeah. always been yeah you know with the camera and stuff and you always said that to me as well like you know you in this day and age writing features isn't gonna get you a living you know what i mean like because yeah. it's like that's like the, the smallest part of what i do now where it was the only thing i wanted to do three years ago yeah so it's like i do feel like i'm i'm kind of growing my skill set but like not, not that I'm amazing on any of it, but just that I can do it. Um, and the next, like, I, I think I think now, not that I want to get into too much detail, on it, but what I really like to do now is, is kind of make a podcast that only focuses on Europe. I think everybody in the MMA space is just basically copying Ariel yeah. and trying to, like, do a review of what happened at the weekend. I want to just specifically look at Europe. Yeah. Um, and it won't have as many listeners. But it will have a loyal group of listeners that that will be interested because there's a great scene, not just in Ireland, but all over Europe of of different promotions that are trying to become the pathway to the UFC. And it's becoming a lot more interesting for international fans. Like we're seeing a lot of international fans watch uh, KSW and Cage Warriors because they know this is where the best guys in Eastern Europe and the UK and Ireland definitely come from to, to the UFC. So it's something that I'd like to do. And I think there's... There's not enough of a enough of a spotlight put on some of the guys in Europe, uh, because there's so many huge American and Brazilian stars, and when they're on the card, they're obviously going to get the the majority of the media attention. Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to do next, and um, it's been something that's been kind of I've been kind of working out for the last while, and and hopefully we'll we'll see something like that take off in the next few months or weeks. Yeah, I was actually talking to a guy last night who just started a website about the three big soccer clubs in Stockholm, and he was saying that he, he doesn't have a whole lot of viewers. He has a like a few. Say he has a few thousand viewers, but they read everything. And he was saying yeah, yeah. the time they spend on the page, like they really sort of consume every word that's put out there. And in turn, now he has gambling companies who are they're just mad to get that level of engagement. So, and again, if we go back to 
of uh, you mentioned Ken earlier, earlier on there, the, the second captains, you know, when they went over to the Patreon format and they, they were first doing their, uh, obviously they were on uh, News Talk, then they went on to the Irish Times and then they went on to the Patreon format and people are paying them. And you know what? Like, you know, if you have a thousand people paying five euros a month for what you're doing, that gives PC Carroll the chance to go and do other things. Now, I don't know how that's going to work with MMA fighting. But again, it goes back to where the discussion started is how you're going to monetize this, how you're going to make sure that you're able uh, to pay yeah. the rent for that lovely apartment and keep that lovely dog of yours in the style to which he's accustomed <laughs> and, and also and also get something else. yeah he's still there Reggie's still asleep there. but um but to get that but uh, just you know to sort of round off a little bit what what have you written what story have you done that you feel the most proud of somebody who say to you Pete what's your favorite story you've ever done um the Neil series before I retired that one the yep. one where it's not about you know I think so many of them articles like you're you want to put like you see a lot of people wanting to put a nice full stop on it before they even had the fight. They yeah. want well, look, you've done everything, your life, you're set up for life. Where the piece with Neil Siri is this, uh, this really hard man who doesn't talk about his feelings that much, yeah. giving you such an honest take as like I am terrified of what happens when I leave. I have this as an outlet in my life. I've been able to gear my life towards things for the last twenty years. And that's going to be taken away from me now, as no matter what happens in this last fight. And I can remember uh, guys like you and, and Paul Kimmage started sharing it out going like, I remember Paul Kimmage said, and it was such a compliment. He was like, I understand the sport way more than I ever could have reading a thousand articles about Conor McGregor talking shit to somebody or calling out this guy and that guy. I'm just listening to this man speak about what, what, what the sport means to him and what he's done to get to this position and how that's helped that status being removed from his life is going to ultimately affect him. Hmm. So yeah, I, I've been always, I've been very lucky with, with the relationships I have with the Irish fighters. They've always been, they've always been uh, brutally honest with me and they've always trusted me a lot with, with, with what they say to me. And um, yeah, I'm very proud, very proud of nearly every piece I wrote in Neil Siri because I honestly feel like there's, there's not a lot of people that could, um, get, get from him what I did. And even he did that brilliant news talk, uh, interview after his retirement, them bastards stole most of that from where. <laughs> that was their entire research is one article written by Mr. <laughs> Pizzi. It was. I was like, are they going to say my name here? Like, <laughs> they literally going through the fucking feature asking them questions from it. Like, so piece we'll say it piece. again. <laughs> well, what's, uh, there's what they call fair usage, you know, where you can quote somebody without attributing. I think they may well have shaded over the, the wrong side of that, you know. But I think yeah. the, the gift that you have, Peter, and this goes back to when you started with Conor McGregor and going to the SBG gym and Chris Fields and Neil and all these guys is that people do trust you and you are a sort of a genuine guy who's interested in them and even more than that uh, you're, you're interested in telling their stories because ultimately the best stories are about people and that's where your gift is is in sitting down with them and really drawing those stories out of them and I hope whoever's listening to this has got some benefit from those uh, those stories and that uh, where will they find you at PT Carroll on Twitter yeah everywhere I'm at, at PT Carroll and uh, MMAfighting.com and, and look out for hopefully something new in the next few weeks <laughs> There you go. The fascinating Pete Carroll there on his rise to the top of mixed martial arts journalism. We mentioned Noel McGrath there during the podcast interview. Uh, he actually has a podcast with Noel called Talking Brawls, which is worth checking out, as is the Severe MMA podcast, especially now since Conor McGregor is booked for a fight in Las Vegas on October 6th. These two Irish-produced podcasts are unmissable in the run-up to that fight. And this is what I mean about the media ecosystem that has been sort of created uh, in the shadow of the mainstream media within mixed martial arts. So they just completely do their own thing. They don't depend 
depend on them uh, for visibility or anything else like that. They just they go out there, they tell their stories, they make their pods, and they reach an absolutely massive audience in a tremendous way. That has been the first episode of the Arrowman in Stockholm podcast. Thanks to Ian Mocha Maloney for the wonderful music and the superb Stevie Antonio for the pictures. Like it, subscribe to it, leave a comment. Visit patreon.com forward slash Arrowman in Stockholm and support me if you can. I'll be back soon with episode two. But until then, remember the words of the great American newsman Dan Rather. Ratings don't last, but good journalism does. (laughs) 